You are now tuned in to the December 26th podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Hey, 26er fam, welcome to another episode of the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delicia, and this episode features Miriam Morales. Miriam is an actor and content creator who has been making a name for herself in the digital space and on the small screen. A native New Yorker, Miriam discovered her passion for the performing arts at a young age and spent her childhood performing in church plays. While she wasn't known as the actor in high school, that passion continued to grow. And her guidance counselor suggested that she apply to the American Academy of Dramatic Arts to hone her craft. After graduating from the conservatory, she continued her studies in L.A., where she got a taste of Hollywood's propensity to typecast women of color. Without a stable source of income on the West Coast, Miriam returned to New York and enrolled at Fordham University at Lincoln Center, where none of her credits from the conservatory carried over because she wasn't admitted to Fordham's theater program. But she persisted. She held down two jobs, kept up with her studies, and still found time to audition. She graduated from Fordham with two degrees, and while she continued to pursue acting, she started a career in advertising. Miriam would eventually find representation, and her big break came when she landed a recurring role on the hit series Orange is the New Black. Her other credits include guest roles on Law & Order SVU and Amazon's Sneaky Pete. Now, we all know it can be tough to find longstanding success in show business. And while acting continues to be her passion and purpose, Miriam doesn't shy away from the topic of diversifying her income. And you might be surprised to learn that she isn't necessarily longing to be a megastar. We got into all of that and more during our conversation. So without further ado, please enjoy. Miriam, welcome to the December 26th of podcast. How are you? I'm doing great. I hope you are as well. Thank you so much for having me today. Thanks for being here. I'm excited to have this conversation. We were talking about the technical glitches with Google (laughs) just being over eager with the links that they send in our calendar invites now. (laughs) I promise you like every week is something different. Like every time we feel like we've worked out one thing, there's some other technical glitch we've got to work through. Um, But I'm just happy that we've been able to continue the show in spite of you know everything being shut down and being adjusting to you know adjusting to a, a virtual version and and that actually has been a blessing because we've been able to talk to people who are in other places so I'm really excited to have you on and get into your story are you ready is the question am I ready <laughs> of course okay <laughs> let's do it who is Miriam Morales I like to say that Miriam Morales is a creator Are we summing it up with that that's good. Okay. So, <laughs> creator can mean a lot of things. Um, and we talk on this show a lot about like upbringing and people's background. So tell me when like you realized you had the revelation that you were a creator. I associate that back to the time when I realized that I wanted to be an actor mm-hmm. and create experiences and tell stories. I didn't know it was called acting at the time, but I grew up in a very Christian home. My grandmother raised me and we did a lot of church plays. And I just remember going to rehearsals uh, like once or twice a week and getting to costume and singing. And I just really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. And I just knew whatever this is, this is, this is what I want to do. So I was like five or six, somewhere around there. 
So, you know, when people, we've had quite a few people on the show who like say, I grew up in this really Christian household. DeMarcus and I did too. But that can mean many things, right? On the mm-hmm. spectrum, um, depending on what denomination of like Christianity you landed in. So what did that look like for you growing up with your grandmother? Um, if, well, the church was a Baptist church. Mm-hmm. And that's an interesting question. What did that look like? Because I lived with her, but she would always like to defer to my mom. So it was like, just like these two completely different worlds sometimes. And I just felt whenever I wanted an an answer on something, my my mom would always say, well, you have to ask your grandmother, you know, you live with your grandma. And my, my grandma was saying Spanish, you have to ask your mother, she's your mother. And so I got to the point, I was like, well, grandma said yes. And my mom said yes. So that's it. So, you know, we like to go deep on this show. Um, DeMarcus probably warned you. So how did it come to that of like, you clearly had a relationship with your mom and communicated with her, but you were living with your grandmother. How did that come about? You know, people ask me this question and I don't know. They always say like, well, Mary, my kid just doesn't decide to live with their grandmother. Like what happened? And I'm like, I don't, I, I honestly do not remember anything happening. It wasn't like a big discussion. We didn't sit down at the table and talk about it. It was just something that that just happened. And my mom, um, my mom lived down the block from my grandmother. So it wasn't like she was in a different town. She just was in a different house. And I would sleep over my grandmother's house to go to church on the weekends. So I was there on the weekends to go to church. And she had custody of my cousin who was born with um, a very rare disease. So she was taking care of him. So I would just be there to go to church and then take care of my cousin. and then. I don't know. Somehow I just ended up staying (laughs) even during the week and then magically moved it. Like, I have no idea, but I just ended up at my grandmother's. And my grandmother was our babysitter. So it wasn't like I didn't see her either. I know it sounds weird when I talk about it. But you know, (laughs) it's like, (laughs) but you know, what's interesting about this is that a lot of times in communities of color, we, we spend a lot of time at our grandparents' house, right? If they live in the same vicinity. We did as kids. I was over there every day. Like that was my second home. But I very well knew that like I live with my mom. Like at the end of the day, I'm going to go home. Or even if I stay over there at some point, like I got to return home. And my mom had the final say, right? Even though my grandmother yeah. spoiled us. But so I just find this fascinating that you just transitioned into this other home even though your mom was like right down the street and there was not anything that happened right negatively or whatever that where you ended up staying with her yeah I I if something did I don't remember it <laughs> listen look well that's a healthy I lived with my grandmother as opposed to like <laughs> my parents abandoned me and I had to so I'm not confident <laughs> at all yeah <laughs> so yeah you discovered this love for acting in the performing arts very early in church. And when did you establish that, like, no, this is what I want to do for a living? I would say junior year in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt, okay, so I was, I was an honor student and I was taking all these honors classes. But by the time you got to junior year was when you had to take like the AP mm-hmm. college course type of stuff. And I took them because I had to, but I didn't want to take the test because it didn't make any sense to me. At that point, I was like, well, why would I pay for a test to get college credits if I don't even know if I'm going to, am I really going to be a doctor? Am I go? Am I going to go be a lawyer? I just knew, I just, I just want to be an actor. So mm-hmm. 
I guess I should start applying to colleges. And that's when I started because I knew I had to get better, you know, get more training and go on these interviews and just start the process earlier. So I would say junior year was when I was a little bit more vocal with it being like Mm -hmm. a long-term goal, especially because I had to, there were just certain things in the high school realm that I had to do because of where my academic track was, but Mm -hmm. that I want to do because I knew I had to put my attention somewhere. So at that point in high school, because you grew up in New York, right? So a lot of kids um, who are into the arts and grow up on one of the coasts um, and when their teachers or, you know, guidance counselor parents see that talent and that drive, they try to push them early into becoming a professional actor before they even get out. So trying to find an agent or manager or auditioning, were you doing any of that at that point or was it more so like high school plays, all of that? I I did a lot of just like the school plays and the mm-hmm. community plays, whatever was being put on. And I would use the penny saver because that's all I knew of at the time <laughs> to look for auditions and beg my parents to take me on auditions in the city because I lived, um, I grew up on Long Island. But I wasn't at that point yet where it was like getting agents and managers because I didn't, I didn't know anything about that at that time. And neither did my parents. It's not like we had anyone even remotely close to the business to tell me what I needed to do. I just literally the penny saver and whatever little things I, I would find. And it was my guidance counselor actually that helped me um, to apply to the conservatory that I ended up going to. So what was that you know process like? Because I think a lot of people, when they hear, oh, I went to school, right, for the dramatic arts or all they know is like Juilliard or Tisch. Yeah. And realize there are many other programs out there um, that are well-known and notable and what have you. So what did that process look like for you from your guidance counselor saying, oh, here's what I think you should do to actually getting in uh, to your school? Well, funny that you mentioned Tisch because that was my number one choice. Mm-hmm. And I was early decision because I, w- I didn't think I wouldn't get in. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I applied early decision and I auditioned and I think I had like two or three meetings after the audition or something. And I really thought I was, I really thought I was going to get in. So I didn't apply to a ton of schools. Um, I also didn't have the money to apply to all of these schools. So I think I, I applied to four or five, but Tish was definitely my number one choice. And so when I didn't get in, I was just completely devastated. And I was mm-hmm. like, what am I going to do now? Like literally, because at this point, I'm a senior. Everyone knew where they were going to school. I'm about to graduate. And I just got this rejection letter or wait list, whatever letter it was. And I was just like, I just remember hysterical, like hysterically crying, going to my guidance counselor. And he was so nice and so kind and patient with me. Like I literally felt like my life was over. And I just remember him handing me a pamphlet to the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. And he mentioned some student that he had, like, I don't know, a decade ago or something. And that's where she went to school to look into it. And that was when my eyes opened up to conservatory training. It doesn't have to be a four-year school. Like, my eyes were set on a four-year school because that's all you hear about. Even when you look at college books and you look at, you know, what are the top-ranking schools for theater and stuff like that. Um conservatories really aren't even mentioned or maybe they were and I just didn't notice because my heart was set on NYU and so I, I researched a school and I'm like wow this is a pretty prestigious school if I didn't get into NYU I'm not going to get into the academy like that's just how I thought 
Um, but I auditioned anyway. I worked on my monologue with my coach, with my drama teacher, and I auditioned and it was a weird audition. I did not think I was going to get in at all. It's not going to happen for me. But then I got my acceptance letter like a week later. So I was like, okay, I guess I'm going to the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. And I don't regret it. I think that, I think everything happened the way it was supposed to. It was the best decision. Not even the best decision. It was the best school for me. Mm-hmm. So, you know, one of the experiences I think people have across industries and with whatever your talent is, and you're like, okay, this is what I want to pursue when I get out of high school. And when you get into an environment with a bunch of people who have the same interests that you do, um, sometimes there's that intimidation factor. Like, you may have been like known as the actress at your high school, but then you get to college, particularly um, or a conservatory, and particularly one that's focused on your specific gifts. And it's like, wow, all of these people are talented. And that sometimes could have some psychological effects or affect someone's confidence. Did you have that experience or did you feel like, no, I actually found my tribe. This is where I'm supposed to be. I did not have that experience because in high school, I was not known as the actor. Hmm. Like I wasn't, I didn't get casted as lead, let alone casted period in any of uh, the bigger school plays. And so at that time, I I wasn't someone that people would look at and say, oh, that's the actor. She's probably going to go off and do whatever. So when I went to conservatory, I didn't feel, I didn't feel that at all. But I also didn't feel like I found, I found my tribe either. Mm. I, I was, for me, it was more of like a, like a, like a culture shock. I came from a very diverse community in Long Island. And this was the first time I was around so many white people and being like one of the only (laughs) people of color. So for me, that was a little bit more um, jarring. Yeah. And I think part, I have my theories about like why that is in certain (laughs) environments. And I think part of it is because it's not because we're not talented, you know, as people of color, we don't have dreams to go into these spaces. But for a lot of us, I think it's drilled into our minds that like, that's great that you want to be an actor or a musician or whatever, but like, let's do something that is going to guarantee you a great paycheck and a great career. And who knows if you're going to make it. So I think that's part of the reason why um, you go in these environments and they aren't particularly diverse because not in all instances, y'all don't come from me online. But <laughs> anecdotally, my experience has been my white friends who pursue these things, it's because they have the financial stability and the guarantees through a trust fund or inheritance or whatever, that they're going to be okay, whether they pursue, try to be an actor or, or something else. So um, I think that contributes to the disparity in terms of like attendance numbers, you know, in these programs. So, but you, you said though, um, that this was the best place for you to be, or was the best, you know, decision. So what made it that considering that you were kind of hanging in the balance there? I, it's, it's a, it's a very small school. And I quickly realized that had I gone to NYU, I would have just been a number. Mm-hmm. I mean, granted, I don't know how many people are accepted into Tish and all the different, uh, you know, focuses that you can have there. Because this was strictly an acting conservatory. There really wasn't any on-camera training until second year. And second year was by invitation only. So there wasn't even a guarantee I would even be there for the full two years. Mm -hmm. But I just felt it was the best for me because of the size, the class size. Um, And I also felt it was better for me because in a weird way, 
I was still able to work. Mm. So I, would, I commuted into the city and I would do my classes because they had two sessions, morning or, or afternoon. And I was in the morning session my first year. So I knew, okay, I'm going to get up really early. I'm going to go to conservatory and then I'm back on Long Island and I can work. It's like, that's mm-hmm. just how my brain worked at the time. And I think being one of the very few students just out of high school at this conservatory, it kind of helped that I had something to go back to that was still kind of familiar in a way versus being around so many people that was so much more. Mm-hmm. And during your time there, did a vision for your career, what you wanted, did that crystallize for you in those two years? Oh, not really. <laughs> not really. Um, it was, oh, that's, a, that's a great question. I would say I was still, like many actors, we train in so many different styles. And so you think, well, this is going to be easy. I'm just going to go out and audition and I can do everything. You're only taught technique. You're not taught the business of acting. So I didn't have an understanding that how I viewed myself wasn't how other people viewed me. And so I just, I thought I could do like literally, I could do TV and film and theater and I can do Shakespeare and I can whatever. And then I quickly realized like, no, they like your type in a certain space in a certain way. So let's unpack that myself. <laughs> yeah, let, let's unpack that a little bit um, because I think we know, right? Yeah, we know. <laughs> what, what is meant by that? Um, but what what was the revelation for you in terms of like, okay, they're trying to pigeonhole me in X prototype. What was that? So interestingly enough, it wasn't at conservatory because I mm-hmm. said we were forced to do different things. But after like the summer that I graduated, I did a program out in LA with TVI Actor Studio. And there was this one class that I had where they were going to assign scenes or we had to do a monologue or something. It was something that was performance-based and they selected me to do my monologue. And then I was given a scene in a class. I didn't like the scene. So I went to complain to the organizers. And I said, you know, why do you keep giving me these, these super like attitude New York Latina? Like, what's up with that? I don't want to do that. <laughs> and they're like, girl, you just got to take it. You get your foot in and then you work your way around it. But I didn't understand what that meant. For me, it was just like, but why are you giving me that? There's another Latina in the class. I don't see you giving that to her. So I... That was a difficult thing for me to like wrap my head around for like a good two years, <laughs> even after that experience. But it mm-hmm. did help me to realize that they're looking at me and deciding where I am without even seeing what I'm capable of. Mm-hmm. So with that experience, did it change sort of your outlook on what was possible in terms of a professional career as an actor? Like, were you no. saying, OK, this is maybe I don't need to be doing this full time. I'm going to be constricted to this kind of route um, or, or no. No, Mm -hmm. because I, once I, once I realized that I said, okay, it may look a little different. It may take a little bit longer, but is it possible? Yeah. So when I think of people that really inspired me growing up, it's the people that look like me. So Gina Torres, Lauren Velez, Rosie Perez, and I looked at their careers and that's exactly what I want. 
Mm-hmm. I don't have to be the well-known person on every cover of, you know, the magazine and what, no, I want a long lasting career with dynamic, interesting, layered, ugly, messy characters. And that's exactly what these women have. And they look like me and they're Afro-Latina and they identify as Afro-Latina. So I just, I knew it was possible. It was just shifting my mindset mm-hmm. to not allow what the standard is and everyone else that wants to stick with the standard not affect me. Mm-hmm. So you go through TVI Actor Studio. What was the next step for you? For me, at the time, I was set on staying in LA. I mean, mm-hmm. I was only there for a two-week program. I didn't have any money to stay in LA. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what I was thinking, but I was like, I'm staying in LA, looking at apartments like I have the money. Um, the last day of the class was of the program was the day we were supposed to have like mock auditions and interviews with. Um, agents and different casting directors. But I didn't go to that because the morning of, I got a phone call from a friend who told me that a a mutual close friend of ours had passed away. Mm. And that was my first experience with death as an adult. Well, it was 18, but you know, close enough, um, 20. And um, I just, I didn't know how to manage my emotions. I didn't know how to cope. So I just spent the day crying in the dorms. I didn't even bother going to those classes. And I came back to to go to his funeral. So I decided, okay, I'm going to take a year off and work and try this acting thing, which is hard to do when you're working a full-time job. Right. Living in Long Island. And I would audition when I could, um, but it wasn't, it wasn't going the way that I thought. So were you auditioning without representation? Oh, yeah, that's what a lot of actors do. Okay. Non-union acts. <laughs> and you mm-hmm. use sites like Backstage and Mandy and, you know, NY Castings. And you go to these open casting calls and you self-submit. And if you get an appointment, great. Um, but, yeah, I was doing it for a very long time without representation. Okay. So you take this year off, right? And you're not making progress in your acting career. Now, like you hear these stories, right? I love a good memoir or like long form interview <laughs> about people's journey to success. And there are some people who are like, I always knew that I was going to make it. So I just kept going. I kept, you know, I kept applying or whatever. And there are others who were like, this wasn't working out. And I just decided to make a left turn and put it on the back burner. And at some point I rediscovered my passion uh, mm-hmm. for acting or what have you. So for you, you were in this year off. Things are not quite working. You're, you're, you have a job, like a full-time job as well. Um, what did you decide to do? Was it like, okay, I'm going to continue to push? Or did you decide to take a detour? No, I continued to push because I didn't, I didn't understand what this detour thing was. I didn't understand this plan B. I didn't understand. Like, that didn't make any sense to me. Hmm. You need money to be an actor. You have to pay for classes and your website and your reels and headshots and all of that. So for me, I saw my full-time job as an asset. It's helping me fund my dreams. So mm-hmm. I didn't. I never saw it as one or the other. There are a lot of people that do, and they will give you that that message and you know that advice. And I worked a full-time job for a very long time while pursuing acting without representation and with representation. I, for me, I just, I felt that this dream, this passion is a God-given dream. Like God gives you dreams for a reason. 
And I just always felt like it's my duty to see it. Mm -hmm. You know, I love um, Chandra Wilson from Grey's Anatomy talks about how when she first booked the show, like she kept her job at a bank because she was like, it might work, it might not. But I'm not not giving up this good job, you know, that I have. And I think like being in an actor or a musician who's had some level of like notoriety or gotten some opportunities. Um, people have this idealized view of what that means financially. And I do want to get into that later for sure. Cause I just think <laughs> how realistic maybe some people view it. Um, yeah. So we can talk about that, particularly in light of like where we are as a country. Um, but while you were doing all this, you ended up uh, enrolling in school uh, again, right? Is that correct? Yeah. I okay. ended up, uh, I went to Fordham university and the idea was I was a transfer student. I was going to take my two-year degree, do another two years, and be done. Because mm-hmm. I knew I always wanted to teach. And I had read that you need a four-year degree to teach, acting, theater, whatever. Or so I thought at the time. So I'm like, okay, I'll transfer to Fordham. I auditioned. I sent, I sent in my tape. What I didn't know at the time, because no one explained it to me, was I got into the school but I didn't get into the theater program. So therefore my credits mm. weren't accepted and I basically had to start over. So I was really upset about that because I'm like, wow, I did not plan on another four years of school, but I guess that's what right. I do. And so I, I decided, well, I'm, I'm not in the theater program, so I can't take acting classes. I can't take theater classes. Um, so then I, I majored in communications and media studies. And actually, I double majored up until my senior year when I changed it. But yeah, I went back to school. So you were going to school, working and auditioning, working two jobs and auditioning all all together. How did that work? Like, I mean, it sounds great (laughs) in theory. And, you know, anybody who knows anything about show business is like things come up and it's like, you got to be here on this day. And if it's an open casting, you could be there for God knows how long. So how are you managing that? The realities of just trying to balance pursuing degrees, working two jobs and pursuing your, your passion. I, my freshman year, I just really, I didn't know, I did an audition. I didn't self-submit to anything because the adjustment from conservatory to a four-year school and all these different classes was really, really difficult for me. And at one point I thought, okay, I, I'm just going to drop out because I can't, like, this is, I can't do this, but I pushed through. Um, so my freshman year, I didn't do anything. Sophomore year, I was able to take an acting class at night. So I, I, at that point I was like, I can't not act. Like it was just weird to not do anything. So I took acting classes at night, sophomore year, um, for the, for the fall semester. And then I started submitting myself again and auditioning. So when you're a non-union actor, a lot of the productions that are out there are put on by other non-union actors or people that have full-time jobs. So I was lucky enough to, if I did have an audition, I would just go. (laughs) If I Mm -hmm. missed a class, if I was late, whatever, I just, I went to my audition. If I booked something, most rehearsals were in the evenings anyway. So I would rehearse in the evenings. Shows were usually in the evenings or on the weekends. So I just, I learned time management very, very quickly. And I learned to like honor my time and, and, and prioritize. So was it difficult? Did I have a lot of time for fun? But I didn't feel like I was missing out on anything because it just felt like what I needed to do 
to get to like where I want it to be. So yes, school, <laughs> school two jobs, community from Long Island, <laughs> rehearsals at night, getting home at midnight, waking up at five, like, yeah, for four years and then some I did that. And what kinds of jobs were you working? <laughs> okay, so I was working at my local library at the time, which I had been there since I was like 16. So yeah, long time. I was lucky enough to have a boss that allowed me to make my own schedule. So I always worked whenever, you know, I didn't have classes basically. Um, and then I left that junior year while I was at Fordham because I felt like, okay, well now I need to taste a bit of the real world. Like, what is this going to be? So I interned at Sony um, and then I interned for talent agents because I figured I should know what it's like to be at a talent agency, even if I'm not there to be an agent, but just to understand like, what is it that they really look for? How are they really looking at these headshots and, and resumes and things like that? So I interned there for a while up until I graduated. And then I started looking for a real job and um I fell into advertising Mm. so I worked in advertising for a few yeah for a good like six years I would say and what were you doing in the advertising field so my first advertising job I was on the production side so I did a lot of uh the contracts with whatever photographer, director we hired for our commercials. I led all of the pre-production meetings, put together all the pre-production books, handled all the vendors, made sure everybody got paid. (laughs) I worked out with departments, so I helped with their session paperwork with the union to make sure that whoever was hired for the commercials, you know, they had their paperwork, they were paid on time. So it was very administrative in nature, but it still felt creative for me. And it was just another, for me, it was another side of this entertainment field that I got more experience in. And then in my second agency job, um, still within production, but working more on the talent side. So contracts, renegotiations of commercials and that sort of thing. So listen, what I find interesting about this, though, is we all need to work. And I know a lot of people who, let's take my my field, the law, right? A lot of people who are entertainment lawyers, entertainment lawyers, because they wanted to be an artist, like, or a rapper or a singer or what have you, oh, right? Oh, wow, really? Um, like those, those who can't do represent, a lot of people like that in entertainment law space. But for you, you, you do hear of people taking jobs behind the scenes in entertainment in hopes of being, like, discovered that way. But what was it like for you coordinating these opportunities for other talent when really you went to school to be the talent? I never, I, you know, I didn't go into it to, with the hopes of being discovered, but I was very cautious to not say that I was an actor or a trained actor because I heard the conversations around me and people, you know, just talking about former employees and how they just worked there because they thought it would be like an in or whatever. I wasn't even thinking like that. I just saw it as another side. It's just more information. It's more experience. I wasn't involved with the casting of it in any way. So I didn't feel like I was really missing out on anything. <laughs> um, for me, like I said, it was just about doing the behind the scenes of it, which was it's very helpful in terms of your mindset because it it really helped me to 
people always say when you're when you're in training, they're like, there's going to be a thousand reasons why you don't get a role and it doesn't have anything to do with you. That is really difficult to understand when you first come into it. You don't know what that means. You haven't even auditioned before. You don't understand rejection. You're just in this training mode. Once I got on the other side, I really did understand that it really doesn't have anything to do with you. I saw them, I saw people pick, you know, actors, models, females, whatever, for reasons that didn't have anything to do with how they did in their audition. It just, they were the right height, you know? So for me, I didn't see it as I was missing out on anything. I just saw it as I'm still part of the bigger picture. I'm very mm-hmm. much a bigger picture person, so... So in those years that you were working in, in, in advertising, did you get any opportunities or book any any roles simultaneously? Yes. So my second agency job, I got a manager. So once I did have rep- legit representation, then the types of auditions I went on were different. I was self-submitting less because I didn't want to do those things anymore. And I was going out for more legit TV and film. And I, within a couple of months of being with my managers, when I booked a small role on Law and Order, and my manager was great because she brought me from my other job. So for her, she she didn't care, which I appreciate it so much because it's so hard to find a boss that genuinely doesn't care that you have like another passion. She always said to me, I know that you're a hard worker. And as long as you get your job done, like I don't care. So we'll figure it out. And I said, okay. So that's that's how our dynamic worked. If I had an audition that would cause me to be late to work or I had to leave work early or use my lunch break, that's what I did. And it was never a problem because I wasn't taking advantage of anything. You know, I'm using my lunch hour to audition. <laughs> right. People go on walks during the lunch hour and they get their nails done. And I'm just sitting in a room with a camera. So it's no big deal. And if I happen to book something and I needed time off, then I took time off. So how did you go about finally landing representation? I had, e- I would email and send my headshot out to anyone and everyone just to see who would bite. Never got anyone. I would meet agents that seemed interested and I would follow up and then nothing ever happened. So I had done, I did an indie film a few, uh, a long time ago with a friend of mine and he hit me up one day and was like, hey, do you, do you still need like representation or whatever? And I was like, yeah, who are you with? So he mentioned this woman's name and I was like, okay, does she have a website? She didn't have a website. And I was like, all right, well, where can I see more about how she works as a manager? Like, who does she represent? Like, what's, what's the deal here? <laughs> um, and there really wasn't anything on her. Um, but I knew that he liked her and he seemed to be happy. So he's like, I'm, I'm more than happy to make a connection and whatever happens, happens. Like if you decide to work with her, great. And I'm like, all right, sure. You know, like, whatever. So I never actually met her in person until after a few years working together. It was just like a text phone call type of conversation. Mm-hmm. And she seemed excited to work with me. So I was like, okay, sure. Yeah, let's, let's work together. And that's kind of how it happened. And it's, how it is now too. It's not, it really isn't like it was back in the day where you could, you know, send your, your stuff out to people and get meetings. It really is through referral now. Like you have Mm -hmm. to have someone who's willing to make that introduction and that's hard to come by. So, you know, I feel like it's almost a requirement in Hollywood that you appear on Law & Order at some point, like (laughs) (laughs) in your career. 
Um, I don't, like, I don't even know. <laughs> yes, I don't even know how long that show has been on at this point. I, I'm not even not even sure about that. They're on like 24 seasons or something. It's I crazy, right? I'm yeah, I'm all about SVU for sure. The rest, but SVU, yes, that is it for me. Um, but after booking that, did you feel like okay, the tide is shifting for me, or did you see it as this is one singular job that I've now booked? I saw it as both, honestly. Mm-hmm. You know, every opportunity is a stone to build that step for the next step. Um, I did feel like, wow, it took me so long to get here. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I felt felt old in my journey, but I also understand that everybody's journey is different. And it really did help me to understand the importance of having representation Mm -hmm. so that you can get in the room. So I just was like, okay, I'm in and I just, I need to, keep building from here. And what do you consider your big break? Do you consider that your big break or, you know, what you're probably most known for at this point, Orange is the New Black? Do you consider that the moment where you're like, yes, this is it. I'm out of here. I still didn't even feel that when I booked Orange. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I just saw it as, it was my dream show to be on. First of all, it was on my vision board. So for, for me, yeah, it was a big deal. It will always be like, you know, such a special project and special time in my life. But I didn't feel like, oh, I've made it. That's it. I'm done. I, I, I didn't I didn't feel that at all. So how did how did Orange come about? How did that opportunity find you? So I had uh, just lost my job <laughs> and um, my manager at the time was. Uh, being very obsessive with getting new headshots. And I was just like, I can't afford new headshots right now. And so we, she left it off. Our conversation was like, well, go find a full-time job so that you can afford new headshots. And I'm thinking, are you kidding me all these years? And you're just going to leave me out here to do this again? How dare you? So I just remember being like so upset and like the I knew the third season was going to be coming out soon. And I mean, this was a show that I would text her about with every season. Mm. Just text her, hey, what's up? So why didn't I go in this season? What's up? What's going on? <laughs> so she te- she sent me a random text one day and was like, so how how tall are you? And I'm like, what? I'm, I'm five feet. And we did this whole back and forth about how I'm not five feet. And I'm like, okay, whatever. Like, what do you, what do you need to know? And she said, well, I saw this breakdown for us. There's a new black and they're looking for someone and she has to be short. And I was like, uh, hello, <laughs> submit me. Why are you texting me? <laughs> Just get this going. Um, and I had auditioned for the show before and I didn't get it. And something inside me just said, like, it's OK. When you when you book the show, your character will have a name and you will be on there for more than a more than one episode. So it didn't bother me that I didn't get it the first time. But the second time, I was very nervous, obviously. Every audition, you're nervous. But this is like my favorite show. Um, So I got my um, audition for Orange. And it was for the fourth season. And I didn't get much information about the character. And that's typically how it is with these things. Um, And I worked with an acting coach on my audition the day of my audition. <laughs> and so I went from working with my coach, came home, changed, went to my audition. It was like any other normal audition. 
I didn't hear anything the next day. And they always say TV moves very fast. If you don't hear anything, then you probably didn't get it. And it was that same night at midnight that the third season was coming out. So I spent the entire weekend binging on the third season, depressed that I didn't get on the show yet again. And by Monday, I had completely forgotten about it. Hadn't checked my phone the entire weekend. And I had all these missed calls and text messages from my manager. And I was like, what is going on? So I called her and her first thing was like, you booked it, you booked it. And I was like, I booked what? What are you talking about? I literally forgot about it. I had no idea what she was talking about. She's like, you booked Orange. And I was like, oh my God. And that's, you know, I stopped breathing and... And was completely in disbelief. Uh, but that is my orange story. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that show, I definitely binged the entire, I don't even remember how many seasons it was in the end, but have seen every episode. And um, that show really took off. And I think what I appreciated about, about it is going into it, you know, it was supposed to be about this one white woman, right? Who... <laughs> goes to prison um, and it really evolved into a show about all of these other characters and their backstories about how they got to where they are now, which I thought was brilliantly done. Um, and everyone I know watched the show, but it sounds like for you, even though it was a dream gig, based on what you set up to now in the interview, you still remained, remained grounded about your career and a um, knowing this is what you were supposed to do, but in a sense, not really falling into the like, I'm always going to work. Like it, from this point on now, I have this credit, the opportunities are going to come rolling in. It doesn't sound like you fell into that expectation. No, I mean, I felt people would tell me being on there for even a season is still good. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay. Or people would say things like, watch everything's going to be different. Your world's going to change. I didn't really, I, I, for me personally, I didn't, I didn't feel that way. That wasn't my experience once the show came out. Um, did I think I would continue working on the show? Yes. (laughs) Did I think that my life was going to change in terms of more opportunities? No. Okay. Did it help? Sure. It helped, it helped to get into certain rooms, but it definitely isn't what's how some people perceive it to be. You know, it wasn't one of those things where I, people would tell me, well, you were an orange. Why don't you get on this show? And I'm like, well, it's not like McDonald's and I can't walk it. Cause that's how people talk about it. You know, that's just not, that's not how it works. <laughs> right. Does the credit help me. Yes, it does help me, but it's not a guarantee. So did you decide to go back to having a full-time job after orange? No, I actually freelanced and I also create content online. I have my blogs. So I just worked on that. And if if other projects came along to work on, because um, I also do social media strategy on the side, then I would do that. Um, I'm not opposed to looking for a full-time mm-hmm. job. I, I've applied to several. But it's interesting. People do not like to hire actors or artists of any like the minute they find out that you have another passion as they say it's just it's a done deal right and I mean you know it's as someone who like has been in the entertainment world and new media and all of that and as someone who's also been in like a very traditional work environment there's an expectation in most companies unless they're progressive that like we pay you we own you 
Like we want your focus here, right? Mm -hmm. And what I find interesting about that is to me, having another passion is no different than say having a family, right? And having to leave work because your kid is sick or they have a play or whatever. But there's this belief that like, if your attention is not divided for something respectable, like being a wife and a mom or having a sick parent or whatever, then this, these other things that you're into and you might need to balance don't matter. Yes, exactly. Yes. And when I first started applying to regular nine to five jobs, when I graduated Fordham, I knew that that would be a problem because on my resume, I kept the academy under education. Mm. And I remember I was at an interview and the interview was going great up until the very end when someone was like, oh, what's the Academy of Dramatic Arts? What is that? And I just said it because I think nothing of it, right? The training, like whatever. I was like, oh, it's an acting conservatory. They're like, oh, so you like acting? And I was like, yeah, I like, I like acting. I like, I like a lot of things. And she was like, hmm. So we really like you. I kid you not. This is what she said to me in this interview. So we really like you, but it's so clear that you have this other passion. You know, you have like this other interest. So I don't really think it's going to work out. And I was like, oh, okay. And so I went home and I took that off my resume. <laughs> so and you like, know what? I'm not telling anyone I'm an actor. <laughs> right. And I think that's why so many actors end up in these like catering jobs or bartending or working at Starbucks from 5 a.m. to 9. It's not because they don't have education or any other talent. It's just, I think it's easier to navigate trying to, to pursue this career and also keep your, your lights on. Um, but I think this is a great segue into like the economics of acting because people, I mean, now I think in the social media era where like it's harder to, just have this image and people don't know what's going on behind the scenes in your house or where you live or whatever. Um, like, I think now people are more, they're realizing that like not everybody who acts and who's been on a major show is balling, right? Like that, I think that's more common knowledge now than it, than it used to be. But I do still think there's um, this idea that like either you're broke, like you're not making any money as an actor or you're Will Smith. Like they don't realize that there are people who, rest reside somewhere in the middle ground where they keep their lights on, they pay their bills. Um, they take these roles. It may be a small role here and a small role there, but they're able to sustain themselves financially. They may have some other creative interests that they're into. Um, and I don't know why there's like this perception that if you're an actor who makes 60 grand a year, like some regular salary, like that, Oh, you're not legit. You're not in it for real. Not realizing that most people reside in that category yes. than the mega rich. Yes. So, and sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> you remind you remind me of a time when I when I was at my first agency job and I remember I, I met someone, I was working on his short film, and he had made the decision to quit his job so he could focus on being a filmmaker. And he he was like, Miriam, I mean like come on, you know, you gotta make that leap. You gotta do this, you gotta do that. Like you know, like, what are you doing? And I just remember people talking to me as though I was less than an actor because I had a full-time job and they were like, you know, doing it. And I was like, well, I'm still, I mean, I need the money. I have things to pay for, you know, like 
I, I need headshots. I need to take my classes. I have to work on my speech. I have to work on my voice. There's no shame in having a full-time job that's going to help you not only pay your bills, but help you fund the tools that you need to even be an actor. Right. So for me, I was never that person that shamed someone else for having a full-time job. I don't believe in pressuring people to quote unquote, take the leap. Cause I think that's subjective and that looks different for everyone and everyone's situations are different, but yeah, so many of us reside in the middle, even if you're a familiar face. Mm-hmm. And that that's the thing. Like, I don't remember, uh, it was one of the actors from the best man and her name escapes me right now, but she, someone had asked her how she survived, like, from movie to movie or gig to gig. And she said unemployment. And she was like, a lot of actors don't realize that they're eligible for unemployment insurance, but that's yeah. what has sustained me um, from, from moment to moment. And, you know, for me, I will readily admit that I don't do well and not knowing where my next dollar is coming from. Um, so that's not, that lifestyle is not for everyone. Right. But now being a situation where you've applied to full-time jobs, but you have the freelance thing going and you're also acting, have you had moments of anxiety? Like I can't live in the unknown anymore. Yeah. I think that's normal. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I think the pandemic has heightened that for a lot of people, but especially performers Mm -hmm. because the industry essentially was shut down. And also Mm -hmm. because of these ridiculous laws and bills that exclude mixed earned workers. So right. it's, it's hard, you know, not everyone that, that is an actor is necessarily going to have a 1099. Some of us get W2. So that's another thing, the assumption of what type of piece of paper we get <laughs> that defines mm-hmm. our job makes it very complicated, you know, to get any type of benefits, which is unfortunate, but I think mm-hmm. it's normal to have that type of anxiety. And I'm already normally an anxious person. So <laughs> this year has been quite the ride but I think that I think it's a normal thing but I also I also remind myself I got into this knowing that it is very unpredictable I have to trust in the unknown Mm -hmm. and I think this year has put us all kind of on the same level like we're all dealing with things that we don't know about So this idea that a a certain career or a certain job is more of a guarantee or more stable, I feel like now it kind of shook things up a little bit because so many people are, I mean, it sounds horrible to say that, that it's a good thing, but I'm just saying, I, I feel like this year has been very enlightening for people to just, to realize that nothing really is guaranteed. Right. And I think too, Another enlightening thing for a lot of people has been um, realizing that even people that you know and they have name recognition who may command a certain amount of money, right, to appear on something, to tour as an artist or whatever, many people, even if they make more money, live like the average American, meaning they live paycheck to paycheck. So I think that's been really sobering for people too, to see that like these folks, a lot of them need to work. Like they have not... Even if they have reached a certain level of financial um, success, they're not managing the money in a way that if 
the whole world were to stop moving like it has, they're able to sustain themselves and also just their staff and all these other expenses that they're they're covering as well. So it has been as hard as this year has been. I think it has pulled the curtain back on a lot of things. And it's been an equalizer in a lot of ways in terms of like what people deem to be successful um, and, you know, and, and their presumptions about how far somebody is in their career as well. Um, but it, but in your experience, have you been able to audition during this pandemic? Yes. So auditions actually picked up for me a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Um, it was pretty hit and miss there, <laughs> but they did pick up. Everything was remote. So that's been a whole other, you know, learning curve. Mm-hmm. Um, just getting used to having, well, we're used to self-taping ourselves, but um, I had my first Zoom audition like a month ago. So just have I been on Zoom before? Sure. Have I been on a Zoom audition before? No. So that was something that you have to get adjusted to. And it's like anything, uh, things change and you have to pivot. You have to adjust and to be comfortable with things that you're not normally comfortable with. So with the increase of self-taping, it's just, you know, getting the setup right. You know, I mean, I have 30 minutes to set up my lights in my backdrop. I have to get that nailed down. I may have I may have less time to prep now because they need to cast right away or um, whatever the case may be. But I'm thankful Mm -hmm. for any audition that has come my way during this time because it was really slow for a while. But thankfully, remote auditioning is a thing. And I think it's going to be here for a while Mm -hmm. for us. And I think that that's a good thing. You know, I I think um, when I think about this business and the dark side of it, a lot of things that some folks may have known, but now I think it's more common knowledge after the Harvey Weinstein mm-hmm. controversy, after the Bill Cosby controversy, um, this idea of like the casting director's couch. And, oh, yeah. you know, you had mentioned earlier about sometimes not getting a part has nothing to do with you because they were looking for these specific things. I think also sometimes parts are had because some other things are happening behind uh, closed doors. Have you experienced the dark side of this business? In any way? Uh, Not the extent that we've been hearing about, Mm -hmm. but I've definitely had uncomfortable moments on set where maybe something was done or said that I wasn't expecting. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's really, conservatory doesn't prep you for that. (laughs) So, and what, what some people don't understand as well you know, when these stories come out, you'll hear people say like, oh, why are they speaking out now? Why didn't they speak out before? And it's like, you don't know that. You're hearing about it now, but maybe Mm -hmm. that person has been speaking about it for like a year or, you know, every time they have to renegotiate their contract, this, this topic is, you know, coming up, but not, not to that extent, but it's, it's definitely one of those things when it happens on set, it's so shocking sometimes that it paralyzes you. you. You don't know what to do, what to say. You feel like a sense of obligation to just continue with the scene or, you know, with, with whatever. It's almost, it's almost like you feel like your power is stripped away. So I think it's really sad that things have gotten to this point because it's not new. This issue is not new at all. Mm-hmm. But the fact that it had to get this big for people to take notice and to implement, you know, new measures and set rules and intimacy, intimacy sets and intimacy director. It's like, we should have been had that. 
should have been had someone on set to make sure things work. Right. And people, people like to say, sit on the outside and say what they would have done. Like, and that I would have blown the whole industry up and I would have done this. And I'm like, no, you wouldn't. <laughs> no, good, good on you. Like if, if you think you were going to go on this crusade, but for the most part, when you think about the reality of like, um, a production and the cost of that production in your career and what you want your career to be. And if you do blow something up in that way, the blowback from that on you, I mean, you're literally going against a whole industry who has essentially kept a lot of this stuff shrouded in mystery. So I, I always roll my eyes when people say what they would, would do if me, they were in that. Me instance. too. <laughs> me too. I'm just like, mm-hmm. you say that now. <laughs> okay. So shifting gears, uh, describe a time when you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. I feel like I've had a lot of those moments and I can't, I really can't pinpoint one specific time out, but I would say my last two years of at Fordham were particularly difficult because I had a lot of loss in my life and I, I felt, how do I keep going? Like, I just wanted to graduate. I just wanted to finish. Like, how do I get out of, how do I get out of here (laughs) in one piece when I feel like everything around me is falling apart? So I feel like my last two years of Fordham were just extraordinary times. And I really had to, I really had to pull myself through it. And what motivated you to keep going? Just this belief that I meant to do more and just wanting to finish and get my degree. Like, okay, I'm done. Here's this piece of paper that everyone said I should have. Are you happy now? Leave me alone. Mm-hmm. But I, th- I'm i not the one to work so hard towards something and then just be like, okay, that's it. Because things get difficult. Uh, difficult times may slow you down and you may need to pause and reflect, maybe take a few steps back. but stay stay in it and for me that's just what that time was it's like I Mm -hmm. have to get through this because I've invested so much time right and you know people talk about um I think that's first of all also a great philosophy to have with your chosen career as well right (laughs) like just looking with it you've invested so much time and all of that um but I, I remember like this was I think 2012 Um, and I remember being at an entertainment law conference and this lawyer was on this panel talking about streaming and like how it was going to take over the world and all this other stuff. And people were in the room, like, I was very intrigued, but a lot of older lawyers were like, yeah, right. Like television is king. You know, like we have our way of doing things, whatever. Um, and now look at where we are in these, like all of these streaming services that are happening and all this original content, um, and things that shows are being churned out at record speed. Do you think that has opened up more opportunity for actors or do you think on the flip side of where we are in this digital revolution, people are being discovered everywhere? Like, you know, TikTok, YouTube, whatever, they're putting out their own content. So do you feel like the field is wide open for more opportunity or do you feel more competition because some barriers to entry have really changed and evolved? I think um, it's, it's both. Mm -hmm. You can't have one without the other. It's, it's, wonderful to have so much more opportunities not just for actors but writers and you know everyone in 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 the in the profession and more diverse content 
mm-hmm. from different types of people. <laughs> so that's great. But yes, in a way, it does feel like a lot of competition now. Um, and I think that this perception of making it overnight has intensified in a way that it never really has before because of social media and social media stars, which, you know, I'm not against anyone wanting to be an actor and anyone that gets discovered through social media. But I do think it is important to have a respect for the profession and for the time and dedication that it takes to actually have a successful long career, if that's what you want. If you just want to be a person of the moment, then I think social media is great for you. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are a lot of opportunities to be discovered, which which is great. Um, I also think, though, that there are just certain types of casting directors that don't care about that. Right. So I think it just depends on like, what do you want from your career? Like what is what is really, really important to you? And it can get really difficult because there are people that are just that I know that are like tired of it. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. they just want to be discovered on social media. So then they start doing these things. And I'm just like, oh, and they'll say, man, you should do, you know, what so-and-so is doing. I'm like, yeah. And you see, and I, especially <laughs> because everybody's stuck at home and people are just trying to find their lane. Um, there's so many people who are jumping on whatever (laughs) the latest trend is to try to be a social media star. And so often it comes across as just so inauthentic and forth. And I'm like, uh, I feel like you're actually diluting your brand, you know, by by doing this. I get it. You know, people want notoriety and they want fame and all this other stuff. Um, but for you in a perfect world, what does your dream role look like? I mean... I don't know if there is a dream role anymore. Mm. I used to think that there was. I'm beginning to realize more and more that it's more about just the dream projects, like that dream experience. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, if I had to pick a dream role, it's just someone that's, like I said, messy and complicated and just real. Mm-hmm. Just real. But adding on the dream experience is to work with people that allow me as the actor and trust me to just go there and try different things and play and that in whatever idea that they may have had Mm -hmm. of this character just allowing it to flow do you feel empowered and encouraged by the focus on diversity um, and the conversations that are being had about diversity across industry, but particularly in Hollywood as well. Do you feel like we're on the we're in the process of progress or on the verge of, of major change? I could tell by the look on your face what that answer is gonna be. <laughs> I feel like <laughs> I'm not trying to be negative. I'm just honestly, I'm just tired of this conversation. Mm-hmm. I feel like I've been hearing and reading about this conversation since I was a teenager. And I'm just tired. I'm tired. Mm -hmm. And it's not that it's not an important conversation to have. It obviously is. I'm at the point now where uh, how many times do we need to have this conversation? Right. Like how, like really, how many times do we have to have this conversation? It's exhausting. Mm -hmm. It's exhausting to hear it. It's exhausting to participate in it. It's exhausting to justify your existence. Like it's just tiring. And until everyone is represented, not just actors, but 
people that are responsible for green lighting things, money, marketing, casting, everybody. We need it across the board. And until we get those changes, it's, I don't see that happening in the way that it should. And since you are a content creator, do you have any desire to write for the screen as well or create or be a part of actually creating and introducing projects that you might also act in? Yes. And I've actually have written things in the past. Mm. And this year I started writing with two other friends of mine. Mm-hmm. So hopefully by 2021, we can put one of those up if we can film it once the world opens up. But yeah, I've always had a passion for writing. Writing and acting were two things that kind of were my thing mm-hmm. since I was very, very young. So, And when the world does open back up, uh, besides possibly getting this project out there, what do you see for yourself? When we all get back to normal, like what's on your list of like, this is the top thing I want to focus on? I think adjusting to the new normal, whatever mm-hmm. that is going to be. Um, for me, I am still in a phase of working on myself and going to therapy and doing inner healing and all of that messy stuff. And I think once the world does open up, it's going to be really important for me to keep that up because I think the expectations around the world opening up, it's going to be very challenging for me if I haven't taken the time to really heal certain parts of myself. So I'm focused on me, but also just, um, you know, writing. Mm -hmm. And one of the things, like I've said this uh, before, one of the great byproducts of this year, I think, even though it hasn't really been easy, is it has stripped away a lot of the things that we use to avoid the inner work, right? So- We're all over the place. We're involved in this project, that project, traveling at this event, doing X, Y, and Z. When the world came to a grinding halt, it was like all of the things that you used to self-medicate were creative outlets were gone. So it it almost, and in addition to the fact that we were just in like a 24-7 news cycle of ne- negativity, um, but it really, I think for me, it forced me as well to turn inward and say, mm, there's some things here that don't really feel so great that I thought were not an issue anymore. Now I just realized they were just covered by all the other activity and, and all the distractions that I had. So while the work is not easy, um, we are a huge proponent on the show of actually doing it. And, and yeah. I think this is a great time for introspection and kind of digging deep and addressing those unresolved issues to come out whenever the world does open back up as a better version of yourself. I think there's been a lot of focus on productivity, like write that, get in shape, do this. This is the perfect time to focus on your dream. For me, I'm like, this has been a year of self-care and introspection and I'm clearly still producing, right? I'm putting things out into the world, but I don't feel pressure to like go into 2021 when they say, okay, finally these restrictions are lifted. I don't feel pressure to be like, look at these 17 things that I created yeah. last year when we were stuck at home. I completely agree. I completely agree. And I think for I think for me personally, what's been the most difficult is being the one of the very few people in like my circle of friends that have viewed it that way. Mm. <laughs> so even though I'm trying... I mean, I got caught up in the whole productivity talk too in the beginning. I was like, well, now is a perfect time to start that blog and you know, whatever. And then I, for me, I 
quickly realized I know this is the time to slow down. Mm -hmm. This is the time when you realize like what is truly important to me, what relationships are important to me, what are my distractions? Like you said, we self-medicate so much, we don't even realize what those things are, Mm -hmm. right? And how they limit us. And so I, I have a fear of the opening up because I think that the people that haven't been doing the inner work are going <laughs> to just add on to like that pressure of productivity, like that availability showing up, you know, all those things. And it's like, no, nah, I'm just showing up for myself right now. <laughs> That's literally <laughs> I it. To like, fix me. <laughs> I was talking to um, uh, my therapist who I mentioned on the show every once in a while, but one of the things I, I said to her, I was like, you know, I'm so exhausted. Like the, you know, what you would think nine months into this now, whatever it is, like, I'd, I'd feel really energetic, but so much has happened this year. So much change, witnessing so much loss and spirit experiencing loss to, of people that I care about and that I'm close to and all those things. And one of the things she said is, she said, you know, women, particularly women of color, um, we have uh, this belief that we've got to be superwoman at all times. And she said, but sometimes you got to realize even if you're stuck in bed, like you just can't do anything that's better than being under the bed. Like you still won, mm-hmm. right? If you are not completely broken by what has happened. And that is what I'm holding on to. Like every day is not going to be a get up at 5 a.m. and I'm going to write for three hours and I'm going to do my job and I'm going to work out and I'm going to eat healthy. And then, you know, all that. Some days, like just getting through the day in Dang. spite of the barrage of information, the thoughts about what is not happening, what hasn't progressed what have I become complacent in? Just getting through the day and the season we are in as a country and forget about whatever people are going through personally with finances, health, making sure that their family is safe, all those other things. Um, Getting through the day is a win. And that is what I've been trying to remind myself. And that's what we've been promoting on this show. Um, That is a win. That is a win. I completely agree. And that's just how it is for a lot of people. People are just trying to moment. I go bring it back to the acting moment to moment. <laughs> that's all I can worry about is moment to moment. I don't know about tomorrow, but I know about this moment. That's what I need to focus on. But yes, it's, it's I completely agree right. everything that you said. So where can people find you online? Yes, so absolutely. They, um, so my website, it's just my name, demiramorales.com, and all of my links are there, my, my Instagram, Twitter, YouTube channel, um, Facebook page, it's literally just my name, keep it super simple. <laughs> well, listen, I've enjoyed this conversation, um, for sure. I'm rooting for you, and oh, you. I commend you for for sticking with it, like in, in spite of juggling all these other things and all the challenges that come with being a woman of color in this business, we know, uh, the fact that you've committed to your passion and your craft and something that you have a vision for with regard to your life, but also not being afraid to pursue these other things and and do the things that help you feel secure as well, be it financially or otherwise. So we wish you all the best. We're going to be looking out for you on both the big screen and the small, and even looking out for you on the internet and seeing what you're doing on the content creation side. Thank you. I love talking to you. Thank you. I love talking to you. I appreciate it. I love talking to you as well. Shout out to Sun Sarah, previous yes. guest who uh, recommended yes. you to us, um, <laughs> who was a great interviewee as well. And to our listeners, you know the drill. 
Um, if you enjoyed this episode, like, share, subscribe, tell somebody about it. Go find Miriam online. We've got to support each other. We know we talked about how things have changed. We know in this world, followers matter, support matters online, engagement yes. matters. So go check her out. Pretty sure you have seen her by now on Orange is the New Black. We'll go check her credits on IMDb uh, and see what you can find as well. And as always, remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care. Thank you for listening to the December 26th podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa and music was provided by Thovo. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26er. That's December 26ER.